29, this wonderfully familiar and personal psalm of the Lord's care for his servant, Psalm 139, in connection with Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're visiting with us, we're going to read in a moment out of the Smaller Forms and Prayers book again, this time from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of the most beloved and well-known catechisms of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, and it's uh, simply a summary of the main teachings of the Word put in question-and-answer form. Providence is the subject matter. Psalm 139. For the chief musician, a psalm of David, the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you form my inward parts, You cover me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The end of reading of God's word. I invite you to turn to the church's confession of that word, page 211, 211 in the Forms and Prayers book. At this point, the Heidelberg Catechism is expounding on the articles of the Apostles' Creed, and we're under that article, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, which Lord's Day 9 took up, but it mentioned providence there, and now it's asked in question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? And in question 28, how does the knowledge of God's creation on providence help us 
I'm going to invite you this morning to respond to the questions and recite it with me. Question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. Question 28, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. Should we bow to ask for God's blessing this morning? Our Father in heaven, before you, the sovereign ruler over all things, we seek to humble our hearts. And we give you thanks that in your providence we are seated here this morning to hear your word declared and to be invited to enter into the comfort of knowing that you are our Father for Christ's sake and you hold our lives in your faithful hands. Would you let your word be proclaimed in truth? Would you give us the grace to tremble at your word and to embrace from the heart everything that you speak? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, saints of the Lord, this morning we witnessed baptism, baptism of a newborn, beautiful little girl. And we've read now Psalm 139, which extols, right, the handiwork of God in the womb that that he forms and fashions and he brings forth life. And it's very easy at a moment like this to confess that God rules, that our lives are in his hands. But as God adds years to Constance's life, then she will discover what you have discovered, that life has its troubles, life has its sorrows, life has its difficulties. There is pain in childbearing, and there are the sorrows connected with miscarriages and infertility, and a host of other things. There are troubles in raising children, wayward children, disobedient children, children who don't feel loved by their parents. There are, there are troubles in regard to marriage, waiting upon the Lord for the spouse one wants, or or finding some conflict you can't seem to resolve in your marriage. There are troubles at work, troubles with our businesses, troubles with the economy, troubles with finding a job in which we feel satisfied and useful. There are troubles at school, troubles for boys and girls who who want a friend but don't have one, who struggle with math and and can't seem to overcome it, who wonder what the purpose of it all is. There's, There's troubles in our youth, there's troubles in our old age. There are troubles with our bodies. Things fall apart. There's troubles in our souls. We grow weary. There's, there's dark nights of discouragement, even depression or despair. And these are just our troubles. And we look around the world. There's exiles and refugees. There's human trafficking. There's governments that oppress. There's brothers and sisters persecuted throughout all of the world. And then what do we say? 
Well, what does the world say? As we come to the doctrine of providence this morning, we ought to be aware that not everyone embraces this. There are many alternative worldviews by which people try to make sense or understand in some way the world in which we live. We know the theology of deism. Boys and girls, the deist taught that God made the world, he created the world, he set certain laws in this world, and then he walked away from it to let the world operate. The illustrations used of a watch or a clock. The watchmaker builds the watch, he winds it up, and he sets it there, and he walks away, and it takes care of itself. Is that the world we live in? God has gone off on a long journey, and here we are just ticking away. Others have thought in other ways. We know the favorite theology of America is secularism, materialism, which says what you see is what there is. There's nothing else. This is it. We know that our materialistic culture has embraced an evolutionary theory that says this all came about by chance. And if it came about by chance, then rest assured that everything that happens today and tomorrow is pure chance. Or we could point to secondary causes. Every war and every weather pattern is man's doing, man's actions. There are others who try to embrace some Western version of karma, that there's just somehow embedded in this world this, this cold principle of repaying those who do evil with evil, repaying good to those who do good. It just sort of works that way, kind of like gravity. There are others who bow down to fate or fortune, who believe it's all just fatalism. And they find cold comfort in grimly submitting to the inevitable. It just had to be this way. This is the way it is. This is the hand I was dealt, so this is what I have to play. How thankful we are this morning that we bow to confess we have a heavenly Father who made the world, governs the world, and watches over our lives to accomplish his purposes down to the smallest detail. Can you imagine living with one of those other worldviews? To look at your life simply as ruled by the laws of nature or by some people who don't take environmentalism seriously enough or ruled by accidents or ruled by coincidences or ruled by karma, ruled by fate, or ruled by nothing. We're just giant worms. No, this morning we confess the providence of God. It's what Carl and Shani have pledged to teach their daughter, the doctrine of providence. That as she grows up and learns that there's, there's pain and there's perplexities, that all these things will be subsumed under providence. I have a father who at baptism said he'd be my father and take care of me every day. We've all promised, brothers and sisters, to persevere in that confession, not to give up. And so this morning, let us persevere by being reminded that our Father, our Father cares for us. I'd like you to notice, first of all, that providence involves God's constant presence. His constant presence, his personal presence in our lives. The doctrine of providence is closely connected with the doctrine of creation, that God made all this, right? Last time we noted that he spoke it into existence. God gave voice and things leapt to life. God gave organization. He he gave plants, he made animals, he, he made the earth a special habitat for the crown of his creation, mankind. But having made all of that, God does not walk away from it. The doctrine of providence says that God continues to uphold the world with his hand. 
And that's essential because if God didn't, then everything would cease to exist, right? If God for a second stepped away from this world, it would come to nothing. Because nothing but God has life in himself. We actually hear that in the Gospel of John this evening. That God has life in himself. He gives to his son to have life in himself. But nothing of creation has life in itself. We are dependent upon God for every breath. The whole world holds together in Christ Jesus and only in Christ Jesus. So providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, everything. He causes the sun to shine. He causes the rain to fall. He feeds the birds of the heavens. He makes the winds blow. He gives us breath. But God doesn't just uphold the world. We're also confessing this morning that he, that he governs the world. He rules it. He runs it. He takes care of it. He rules the universe through the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, the man at his right hand. And he rules not just galaxies and nations, but he rules every single drop of rain, the slightest breeze in the air. He rules over every blade of grass. He rules over every one of your colds, sniffly noses. He rules over every night's sleep and every hair on our head. Now, the problem we face sometimes is that we tend to think that that God rules from afar without concern for the specifics of our lives or not knowing what we're going through. He's, He's a king issuing edicts from some ivory tower but doesn't know where the people live. He's, he's a legislator in D.C. making laws for farmers in Oregon. Or we feel that, that God's predestination means that there's this, this cold law written in ancient times and it, it, it governs our lives, but it doesn't take into account where we are. And to all those wrong thoughts, Psalm 139 brings to us the truth. It's powerfully encouraging because it reveals a God who is close at hand. And that the working out of his will in our lives is not some fatalism, but it's the the gentle, loving hands of a father. So Psalm 139 doesn't appeal to some shapeless higher power or to some vague law of karma, but from the word go, it appeals to the covenant Lord, O Lord. And it's written in all capital letters, which, as most of you know, is the English Bible's way of translating the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, or as we say in English, Jehovah, but the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The name of, of covenant relation to his people, the name means I am. I am who I am. God's not moved by the turbulences of this world. He is the self-existent one who has life in himself. I am. That's the most basic principle of the universe that God is. And because he is who he is and unchanging, he's also faithful in every word he's spoken to all of his covenant promises. And he as the covenant Lord who's entered into relationship with us is not far or distant from his people. But do you remember, maybe the boys and girls remember this, Moses at the burning bush and God's going to reveal his name, I am who I am. But God says to Moses there, talking about his people who are slaves in Egypt, He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Fate doesn't speak that way. Fortune doesn't speak that way. Karma doesn't speak that way. 
Evolution doesn't speak that way. Jehovah speaks that way. I have heard, I have seen, and I know their troubles. God's not some distant, impersonal force. He is the living God and the Father of his people. Who hears when you cry out. Who takes note when you are beat down. And who sees your every move. All those who know this covenant Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ may make Psalm 139 their own. It is their own. To say, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Oh God, you know me better than I know myself. You've searched me through and through and you know me not the way some huge FBI or CIA database knows me. But you know me in tenderness. You know me in love. You know me with interest in my life and my needs. Your thoughts are always upon me. This is remarkable. We, we don't even know ourselves very well. Socrates said, know thyself. Well, you say, yeah, I tried to, but I don't know why I do what I do. I don't even know what I'm feeling. I can't even express it. And God says, I know you. I know your weaknesses. I know your sinful propensities. I know the desires of your heart. I know the meditations of your mind. I, I know the regrets you have. I know the hopes you have. I know you. God knows us not in the, just in the big events of life, but in our sitting down and rising up. How many times do we do that in a day? Sitting down and rising up. God knows this in our day-to-days. He knows young mothers and their weariness wishing they could sit down, finally breathing a sigh of relief at the end of a long day. He, he knows older saints who wish they could stand up. Who wish they could jump up and run with the energy and strength they had at one point. He, he knows boys and girls who sit down and rise up, sit down and rise up, rise up, and are told to sit down. And he smiles upon them in their play and in their homework. He's a God who, the psalmist says, has laid his hand upon me. Has laid his hand upon me. What a glorious thing it is to have God's hand upon us. Children know the hand of their father. Now, upon feeling that God knows us so well, we might say, how can I get out of here? God knows me too well. Some of us have maybe those kind of emotional troubles that whenever anybody gets close to us, we jet. Don't want anyone to get close to us. Don't want anyone to know. Or maybe you think because God knows you so well, he'd never want to come near you. But as David goes on in Psalm 139, he says, there's nowhere I can go in the whole cosmos, and you are there. David, who contemplates fleeing, comes to the conclusion not only is God everywhere, but God is there to bless him wherever he goes. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I could fly at the speed of light and go across the globe. Already God would be there before me. 
And God doesn't meet me there as the one who's ready to destroy me, but as the one who wants to guide me, who wants to lead me, who wants to keep me. It's the hand of a shepherd. It's the hand of a father. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, sometimes to look at our father's hands. I was reading one writer this week who spoke of the fact that when he was a young boy in Holland, they all read this certain set of books about a, about a boy. And the first book, in the first book, the, the boy's father dies. And as he tells the story, as the boy is there looking at his father laid out there on the bed, deceased, dead, he's fascinated. He's immersed in staring at his father's hands. Those were the hands that spanked me. Those were the hands that carried me. Those were the hands that pulled me out of the canal so I didn't drown to death. Those were the hands that worked and worked to provide for the family. Those were the hands that were formed around a shovel. And he's fascinated with his father's hands. But if you notice, Lord's Day 10 is fascinated with God's hands, right? Three times over, it speaks of God's hands. Psalm 139 is fascinated with God's hands. You've laid your hand upon me, verse 5. Verse 10, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Christians are fascinated with God's hand until at last they come to their last breath and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are mighty hands. These are loving hands. And they're the hands that hold our lives and guide us even through the deepest darkness of this world's violence and corruption and our own sin. The Lord's at work wherever we go. Whether we go to school or work or take a vacation to Europe or tour Israel or hide in our bedroom or hang out in the locker room, God is there. And he refuses to let go. And he actually goes before us, right? He went before Joseph to Egypt. He went before Esther into the king's palace. He went before Paul into the Philippian jail. So we know that whatever tomorrow holds, our father's already there. With hands that provide, hands that soothe, hands that shepherd, hands that chastise. And this is what makes... God's providence is so pleasant. They've come from God's hand. But this is also, isn't it, what makes providence sometimes so bitter and difficult. Because my troubles are not by chance, but they've come from God's hands. Remember Naomi, who with her husband and two sons, they leave the land of Israel, and they go over to the land of Moab during famine. And in that land, Naomi loses her husband, and Naomi buries both of her sons. And when she returns to the land of Israel, they say, hey, is that Naomi? Which means pleasant. And she says, oh, no, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi pleasant, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? What shall we say to her? No, Naomi, God wasn't there. He couldn't do anything about it. God wasn't strong enough. No, Naomi has it right. She's dealing with the Almighty God. But she has to learn that he's faithful. And even in this moment, she doesn't recognize that there stands Ruth with her. God has given her Ruth. 
And more than that, the Christ child will come of that line. God's hands everywhere, always. And as we know our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And he giving us the greatest thing, won't he give us the lesser thing? And therefore, we are assured that all things are being worked together for the good of God's people, always. In a thousand different ways, for a million different purposes, God is at work. And this is the promise of baptism. God said through the waters of baptism this morning, I will be a father to you. And I will avert all evil from you, or I will turn it to your profit. My hand will be upon you. This is the Christian's comfort. Because, you see, Christ's hands were pierced. Now we can hold God's hand. Because Christ on the cross suffered the striking of God's hand in our place, God's hand can hold us. The wonder of the cross is that it's brought God's hands into our lives in love and in grace for our complete salvation. So we can say with the psalmist, you hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory, Psalm 73. So what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity, yes, and poverty too, all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God's constant presence in his world and in our lives. But then secondly, Consider more briefly God's loving plan. Not just God's constant presence, but God's loving plan. Is God making it all up as he goes along? Is he simply reacting to us? Well, no, Ephesians 1 says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. God could say to his people, Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare are not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In Psalm 139, similarly, it, it goes on to speak of how God formed the little one in the womb. And then he says, verse 16, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. The days of our lives, written in God's book before one of them came to be. That's comforting, right? That's comforting. Sometimes our saints get older, right? And some feel forgotten. God's forgotten me. I'm still living. I want to go home. We have to remind one another. God's not playing a by ear. He's written all your days in his book before one of them came to be. And at the right moment, at the moment he has foreordained, he will surely call you home but not one day sooner. But David's saying more than that. He's saying not just God's written the days, the number of them, but he's written the details of the days. I don't know if you've seen, I'm sure you have probably, that there's books. You can buy a book that has all empty pages. Do you know that? You can buy a bound book, and you open it up, and they're all empty pages, so you can write your own story. 
But in the book of God's providence for your life, there's not a single blank page. Not a single one. God has written every day and every detail of every day in his book before you were born. So you didn't know yesterday, but now that you're here, you know it today. That God, before I was born, ordained that on this Sunday morning, I would be seated here to hear a sermon on providence. I'm not here simply because I chose to be here. Or this are, these are the cards I was, I, was, I was dealt. I'm here because my Father ordained this moment that I would hear his voice proclaiming his love to me. God has foreordained everything that comes to pass. And in a special way has foreordained and predestined everything for the good of his people. And so David's life, he's saying in Psalm 139, is not determined by David, but by the Lord God. And if you don't believe that, you see, the only alternative then is to embrace one of those unbelieving worldviews, like evolution, which not only assaults God, but it robs people of their comfort. And if evolution is true, then, then truly indeed, life is nothing but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But if this is our Father's world, and, and we were formed in the womb by this God, who wrote our days, all of them in every detail before our birth, then there's not a thing in our life that means nothing. Not a single thing. If life is meaningless, then why should I persevere in suffering? Why should I struggle against my sin? Why should I be at peace in the loss of a job or a loved one? If it has no meaning, then it's all just a big joke. But Psalm 139 says there's a personal creator who is the Lord of your life, who loved you in the womb, who put you together, every part, and who remembers you day and night. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher in a devotional, writes, In all our wanderings, the watchful glance of the eternal watcher is evermore fixed upon us. We never roam beyond the shepherd's eye. In our sorrows, he observes us incessantly, and not a pang escapes him. In our toils, he marks all our weariness and writes in his book all the struggles of his faithful ones. These thoughts of the Lord encompass us in all our paths and penetrate the innermost region of our being. Not a nerve or tissue, valve or vessel of our bodily organization is uncared for. All the littles of our little world are thought upon by the great God. Yes, God has planned all things and his thoughts pour over us with all of his good and eternal intentions to do us good. And because we know that we're his handiwork then, formed in the womb, we know that we are not creatures of chance that just somehow happen to be here by some cosmic accident. But that God formed us for himself. He made us on purpose. There's no accidents with God. And we are holy in his care. And so we know that God is not making it up as he goes along. But he has a plan. No, we don't understand it at this point. All the ways in which these things come together for one tremendous good. But we know he's in charge. We know his plan is perfect. We know he's all wise. 
We know our God has a plan. And where does that leave us then this morning, finally, that we are his comforted people? Not just his constant presence and his comprehensive plan, but his comforted people. So what good does it do us to believe all this? Well, we can be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity, and we can have certain hope for the future that nothing will separate us from God's love. Thankful in prosperity sounds the easiest, doesn't it? But it's actually rather difficult for us. After pleading and pleading that God would have mercy and help, when we're delivered, we are often on to the next thing. And we, like the lepers healed, the nine of them, never even think to turn back and say thank you. But we should. And we should recognize even in the secondary causes, the ultimate and primary cause, the heart of our Father. Even when people, have you thought of this? When people help you. Boys and girls, when your mom makes you supper. Or in the church family, when somebody offers you a word of encouragement, greets you after the service. That it's the unmoved mover who has invigorated them and moved their heart towards you. And you are to trace the blessing God gives you through someone right back up to your father who has bestowed such love upon you. Don't be blind. Don't be ungrateful. Don't pray for safety and work or travel and forget to say thank you. Who makes you prosper? Who gives you a successful business? Who gives you a job? Who gives you a wife? Who gives you the breath of life? How precious are your thoughts to me, O God, pouring over me like the sand of the seashore. But patience and adversity, that's a hard one too, isn't it? That's a difficult one. David knows it's an evil world. He prays, doesn't he, with respect to the enemies in the world who hate God and who curse God. David knows this world is not right. It's broken. David is not speaking here of personal vengeance, but he's taking God's side and saying, Lord, I know that this world rises up against you. There are those who who despise your truth and curse your name. We live in this broken world. What should we do? Just throw our shoes at the TV set? Cursed be those politicians. No. We shall pray and wait upon the Lord. That's the theme of the Christian life. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Patience in adversity. The providence of God is not an excuse for sin. Providence of God does not excuse the wickedness of those who legislate wickedness or oppressors who persecute God's people. Providence of God does not excuse our sin. Now that we did the thing that God forbid and we did it, well, I guess it's God's will because I did it. No. Of course, God rules in the ultimate sense. All things are his will, but there's a difference, isn't there, between what God has decreed and what he's prescribed, and we are to live by God's prescribed will. That's the will we know. God rules over wicked men, and God ruled at the cross of Jesus, but what the wicked men did was wicked, and God holds them accountable. But as we wait upon the Lord, there comes Jesus rising from the dead, the victor. As we wait upon the Lord, there goes Jesus to the throne above. As we wait upon the Lord, here comes the Holy Spirit upon the church. As we wait upon the Lord, here he comes in the last day to bring a new heavens and a new earth for his people. 
where there's patience. God's hand is seen. What did Joseph think when his own brother sold him into slavery? What did Job think when God took everything away from him, even his health? And yet God had a plan. God was working out a purpose. What did Miss Bitter think when she lost her husband and two sons and buried them in a foreign land? Little did she know that God had given her Ruth. God would bring Boaz, and of that line, David, and of that line, her own Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. God rules, and so we can have good hope for the future, that nothing in all creation will separate us from God's love. David ends the psalm, and lead me in the way everlasting. And God says, I will. I will lead you to a perfect home, to a new creation, There's no more sorrow or pain to a place when at last your questions are answered and you see the smile of your Father upon you. I will bring you home. People of God, it is a tremendous blessing to know the truth of providence. And it's an even greater blessing to know that it's true for me through Jesus Christ. That though every man must confess God rules over all, it's the child of God who can say he rules for my good. May God give you strength in that profession. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious and mighty Father in heaven, give us eyes to see your hand in all of its power, and tenderness, and all of its loving discipline, and all of its shepherding care. Oh God, we're sorry that we tried to live as if we were the authors of our own lives, the strength of our own existence, the security of our own future. We want to cast ourselves upon you and to acknowledge the obvious and the real, that we are feeble and frail and you are the God of our lives. We acknowledge right now that we have come this far by your strength alone. And here we raise our Ebenezer to acknowledge, Lord, this far by your grace. Minister the doctrine of providence, the truth of the Lord Jesus, to those who are weary today, and to those who are confused, to those who feel forgotten. Store up the doctrine in the hearts of those who feel fine today, but tomorrow will worry. Take away from us all pride and self-sufficiency, that we may give you glory. We thank you, Lord, for your perfect care. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together number 250.